Welcome to the HR on the Offensive podcast, brought to you by Lace Partners. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the latest HR on the Offensive podcast. It's me, Chris Howard from Lace Partners. Once again, thank you very much, as always, for joining us. We're in for a real treat today because I, if you're if you're ready for some energy, then you're going to get it from this podcast because the two guests that we've got, as well as my good partner in crime, David Pacifico, they are all about the energy and they're all about skills and that's what's going to be the focus today. I'm going to introduce you in a second, but before I do that, and today's podcast, we're going to be talking about how does creating a skills-focused organisation drive an inclusive agenda. We'll make it sound a lot more exciting than that, trust me. There's going to be some interesting things that we're going to pull out of this. David Pacifico, how are you? I am incredibly energised already about this conversation and can't wait to hear the perspectives of Annie and a very special guest, Dr. T. Yes. So let's introduce them then. So Annie Bow, who is the Chief Learning Strategist from Degreed. Annie, how are you? I'm doing excellently today, especially now that I'm getting, uh, I'm here getting to talk to you folks about my favourite topic, upskilling. Yeah. yeah. And you can believe it. it. This is my favourite topic. <laughs> Love it. Love it. And joining Annie and David and myself on today's pod is Dr. Tiffany Tesla-Michael, who is the Head of Learning Strategy at Lens Vegas, who, before we went live, I'm going to let you in behind the curtain a little bit, listener, said, I prefer to be called Dr. T. So that is what she shall be known for this from this moment forward. Dr. T, how are you doing? I'm peachy. I say peachy. I'm located here in Sunny Atlanta, Georgia. Love it. So let's uh, let's just I just quickly want you guys to just tell our listeners before we start getting into skills and upskilling and all of that sort of stuff. Let's have a chat about what you guys do in your current roles and why you guys are, in my opinion, thought leaders. I'm going to start. I'm going to go in reverse order to what we just got in. So, Dr. C, I'm going to get you up first. What, uh, give us a little bit of background on yourself for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So. I met Annie, I, I must say. We've known each other for a few years now because of my passion in, I'd say, not even digital learning, but just education, learning, human potential, period. I found my village when I first came to degree back in 2017 and then later went to EdCast, now acquired by Cornerstone where I worked with Annie. So we have worked at the same companies sometimes together. And then most recently, Udacity. Before that, I'm trained as an architect. I used to build schools and that that was always my passion. I went to Georgia Tech at 16, Georgia Tech here in Atlanta, Georgia. I have to keep plugging my city. I'm so proud of us. But that's my trajectory. I think I felt very limited by a career just with buildings and how I was engaged. Even as an architect, as a learning strategist, I get to weigh in on a completely different set of conversations around human potential, not just the spaces that learners are in, but just their mindset, right? What are they thinking about? How do we build these digital experiences around them? So I'm really excited to be here. And that is my story. Yeah, lovely to have you. And because it sounds like with your respective career trajectories, you clearly come as a pair. So uh, I don't think we'll be able to do any more podcasts unless it's both of you on together. Let's introduce your partner in crime then, which is uh, Annie. Annie, tell us a little bit about your background. I'm totally signed on to that idea. We could be joined at the hip with Dr. T. Just a bit of a side mode. They did call me Miss C in high school, but that meant something completely different. Not as respectful, I guess. <laughs> That's so charismatic. Um... <laughs> 
<laughs> just call up my old high school mates. You'll hear that it's not, I, they are, I'm not lying about that. But getting back to your original question, Chris, Tiffany inspires me. And, and I think inspiration causes me to be a thought leader. Inspiration, being a futurist and loving how to think about technology solving the problems that we have today. Now, they can't solve all problems, but I love to sit and think about how the, you know, the world of possible. And of course, that brings you to thinking about L&D, upskilling HR in more futuristic ways, which um, automatically really lends well to thought leadership. Brilliant. And with that in mind, can you just tell us briefly about the world of degree and learning experience platforms? And, and secondly, I'd love to start hearing a bit about where do you see the future of learning going? And that's a huge question. <laughs> so, I, He's starting I, you off nice and easy, isn't he? Eh? Yeah, he is. So, you know, the I, I'd love to, as we're doing this podcast, and it's a lot of UK listeners, I really would love to lean on the Fossway definition of LXPs, which they don't like to use that acronym. And um, I think that Degreed, we don't like to use it either. We'd like to describe it as an upskilling platform. But really, you know, let's say it in, in, in terms that, you know, doesn't don't sound too fancy or too modern. It is just a, a, a newer way of reaching and doing learning within any organization. It's a new way of developing, powered by technology, powered by AI, powered by personalization. But what it really does is help to keep humans relevant. It's helping to keep every person within your organization relevant because they have the skills and the future skills that you might need. So I know that's very simplistic, but I think that that's a really good way to think about it because today what we might need is an opportunity, you know, a feature set to, to practice your skills, but tomorrow you may need an interface that actually helps you to step into a virtual world with an avatar. So I'm not saying that's what Degreed is going to do tomorrow, but if we keep this in mind that our main mission is to, you know, build experts through any means possible and keeping you relevant, then tomorrow that can lead us into something completely different. Today, that means skills. And Dr. T, from your perspective. I am reflecting on when I first came to Degreed, because when I, I launched a startup many years ago, Back in 2009, before there were MOOCs, there was no masterclass, there was no Udacity, no degree. And it was a very lonely place. A lot of colleges, like higher education, and I believe they're still searching, but they've had, they've learned from these MOOCs. But at that time, it just it was just a huge vacuum and a, and a demand for non-credit learning, credential, you know, non-standard credentialing, right? So I think that when, if you asked me in 2009 what the future of learning was, and then that led to these organizations that said, we're going to jailbreak the degree, right? Like Degreed was like very, you know, I think there are a few people who are upset and, and ready to go. And then EdCast was like, we're the Spotify of learning and AI powered platforms. Or AI was a thing, you know, I got to credit them for that, that they were really early to that conversation. And then you have Careers of the Future with, at Udacity, and they were one of the first to focus on flying cars. And, you know, we still don't have those, right? Like somehow like 15,000 plus people signed up for that course, but there were maybe only four jobs advertised <laughs> for flying car engineers. And so obviously there's like this demand and this thirst and this, and this, you know, passion, right? So people, I believe are still reaching for that, which is like the work that I do now is, is very much centered around, okay, maybe rules of the road is sort of like last year, or maybe it's sort of 2009. Can we talk about the rules of the sky? And I think it's it's organizations like Degreed, you know, like these, you know, forward-thinking ed tech companies in, in the most basic ways that are asking us to just use different words. 
no, think differently about what you're saying. Like, please don't like if I hear LMS one more time and I, this is from insiders in, in the industry. It's like the rule of seven. It, it's not the rule of seven. It's like the rule of 70, you know? So I think the future looks like the rules of the sky. It looks like AI powered, you know, Spotify type platforms. I think that, you know, just the, the work that Degreed and all of these other organizations have been doing to change the conversation is going to bring us to a place. I, I saw someone slap a, you know, do like a slap band, but it was like a phone, you know, these little videos. And I see learning happening in so many different contexts and continuing to be much more lightweight in the flow of work. And I, I'd say the last point I'll make on that, and I'm not even trying to plug me and Annie's former employer, but again, they were early to that too, right? How do we not stay inside the same browser? You know, can we not be locked to the same <laughs> app? Can you help me learn wherever I am? I think that is, in my view, we're not there yet. Like, I'm not learning in my car because everyone doesn't have self-driving cars, which is why it's not safe yet, right? <laughs> it's like only if everyone is doing the same thing. So to me, that is how I think we'll see digital learning evolve. I think, you know, we'll be able to learn a whole lot more easily outside of traditional contexts. How many businesses, perhaps we just take a representation of, I don't know, the FTSE 250. How many businesses do you think are truly embracing this concept of LXPs? Mm. I'm wondering how many CPOs listening right now or senior HR leaders are truly embracing this as a, yes, we are on board, we are mature enough to be evolving this, just from your experience, what you've seen and heard from, or are a lot of businesses, they do a lot of businesses still have a long way to go? I'll start with you, Tiff, and then we'll go back to Annie. I'll keep my answer brief on this one, since I had like a whole spiritual experience talking about the future of learning. <laughs> um, <laughs> such a powerful topic, right? Like I, I have a teenager. I think that you know, to my knowledge, you look at some of these quadrants, right? Degreed and EdCast at the top right, like period. Yeah, that's, that's, and it's most of the Fortune 100 at this point, or quite a number of them between one of these two platforms. Now, when we start talking about the global 2000, don't know, right? I don't know what is really happening with SMBs. And in my view, you know, the startup community, the folks who really should be prioritizing learning and, and investing in, you know, rapid upskilling, durable skills. I don't know. I think that there's a lot of opportunity there, just again, based on, you know, some experience I may or may not have had, you know, looking at our portfolios and target customers. But I would say for the Fortune 100 and these giant organizations with budget, I, I think that the leader, the executive leadership investing in it gets it, but they still have that work to do, right? To mm -hmm. tell the story, to socialize and help everybody understand, like, we did this thing for you, right? Like, it's amazing. You should use it. So that that's my perception from my vantage. And I, from your side? Since you mentioned it, Dr. T, I am going to talk a little bit about market penetration, but I didn't come with exact numbers. The greed is by and far, and we we did, uh, you know, I used to work at EdCast. We, I, I think Tiffany and I have, uh, share a, a specific love probably for all companies that we work with, but, you know, why not EdCast too? And, uh, but they are about, before being acquired by Cornerstone, about five times smaller than Degreed. So I, I don't want you to think what I'm 
I'm about to tell you about Degreed is actually the market standard where we're clearly the number one. <laughs> I didn't come here to sell either. But no, we've got about 400 corporate clients or enterprise, what we call enterprise clients. And that's across global 2000 organizations, probably about 30% of the Fortune 100. So I do think that, it, and we've been around for about what, 10, we're in our 11th or 12th year. Oh, David Blake is going to kill me if he hears that. And I don't, that I don't know the exact number, but uh, we're, I think our, our 11th year, we just finalized our 11th year. It is everywhere. So everybody's talking about it, but it's kind of like, you know, that old joke about teenage sex. Everybody, all teenagers are talking about it. Nobody knows exactly what it is. <laughs> and very few are doing it. <laughs> and of those who are doing it, even fewer are doing it well. You know, that you, you remember that joke, right? Yes. <laughs> That's kind of like where we are with LXPs. And I, by the way, you could use that same joke for digital transformation, right? So that, you know, we are obviously on top of that kind of hype curve when we're talking about Gartner's hype curve. We're, we we are on a bubble where everybody's talking about it well, where we're meeting the reality of what LXPs can actually do. And so this is why I think that we've crossed, we, we have saturated the market in what we call the innovative buyer, that kind of visionary buyer, the visionary CLO. And now we are actually penetrating the markets in what we call the traditional buyer. Now, traditional, I don't want that to have a bad connotation because it doesn't. What it means is that they're going to be more receptive to functionality fit to their needs. They're going to be wanting to solve very pragmatic pain points, not those kind of moonshot pain points that visionary buyers do. They take that leap of faith. Traditional buyers really want very tight fit to market product to need, which is not something a visionary buyer will do. So that market is really ripe. I think in 2023 in the UK, it really is the year of LXP. Everybody wants to buy one. Everyone jump on that bandwagon. But my advice would be really really anchored in in pain points and needs and that kind of that's where you're going to see value in an LXP if you're just buying it to jump on the hype curve you you might have a hard time defending it six months down the road yeah it's really interesting I know David's got a question so I'm going to hand over to him for a second but just to build on that I feel like every uh, conference or place that I go to now and I speak to HR professionals everyone's talking about AI and then when you suddenly say what are you doing about AI nobody's got an answer for you which is yeah. fascinating just link, just kind of link to that but I, I know we might get the chance to talk about AI but David sorry you had a question I just wanted to sort of build on what Annie had just said there because yeah. I just find that interesting absolutely yeah I mean you know, having sat on both sides of the fence, you know, I had the opportunity to help drive a learning transformation, a global pharmaceutical and leveraging the degree platform along with other, you know, amazing technologies and content. One of the things that really struck me when I was engaging with other amazing global corporates with the likes of Unilever or Pepsi or Ericsson and so forth was it's one thing to get the technology, but it's another thing to actually really get that buy into a skills based agenda and also that long term commitment and investment to driving that culture of learning and skilling and talking to a number of clients today, that's where they're really struggling. So I'm kind of curious to know for our listeners, you know, what are some of the levers or the tactics that other companies have leveraged in to actually really get the interest around the executive and other business leaders to say, right, this is really important. And intuitively, they all get, right, we need to upskill, we need to develop our people. But there's always that massive disconnect between, yes, we know it's right 
but we're still not really going to do anything different about it. So kind of what, what, what have you guys learned around this space? It's an interesting paradigm, right? And I think that when we think about how we buy technology and that buy-in and the support that you need to make that successful, when you're looking at an LXP, you can't you can't forget your basics, right? And your basics are, how is this going to solve a business problem? How is this going to help my business grow or be more competitive? How is this going to help all the levers of that HR cares about of, you know, retention, attraction, employee experience? All of those things have to be combined in a holistic view. So it sounds daunting and it feels scary. I mean, I think that's why Lace Partners can so easily step into that kind of let me hold your hand why we do this and we can jump off that cliff together but the 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 i think the crux of it is that it feels complicated because it's an ecosystem because there's lots of moving parts and because almost everybody that might be listening to this podcast today have either deployed and bought and deployed an LXP once or never. That is the rate. So when you think about that and the psychology of, of the buyer coming into it, there is a lot of things that could seem very daunting. So just keeping your eyes focused on one or two use cases, make sure those are grounded in business needs and 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 start from there. I think that that's a better way uh, instead of trying to tackle everything at once. So have a holistic view, but start with laser precision would be my advice on that. You know, I was at the recent learning tech conference, which was in the UK, right? There was over 220 vendors. And in, I thought I know a, li- a little bit about the market for it, but even I felt overwhelmed. And like everyone, you know, to Annie's point, everyone's talking a really good game, but are they really doing anything about it? Yeah. I suppose, Yeah. you know, with the progression of AI, how do you think organizations and learners can capitalize that to support Wrap it up, skilling perhaps. I would say that that I've I've run into the same thing, by the way. I wasn't at that conference, but yeah, I get what you you're saying. In fact, it was it was to the exclusion, you know, the number of AI focused sessions, talks, keynotes is now to the exclusion of other topics. And I actually think that's that's the tragedy. It's an important topic. It has been for a while. I feel like when I look at the Googles and the other organizations that are rushing, right? I'll say some of the Dow 30s, you know, giant companies that are trying to figure out, do I buy another solution and, and sort of integrate it in, into, into our story or do we become a new AI bot? And it, in my view, I feel like it's a huge distraction from, from some of the strengths, right, that organizations already had. And again, I'm talking at the scale of the Dow 30, which I think then put you know, it causes these vendors and these solutions to start to proliferate where it's noisy. I just did a, a quick video um, because a, a number of my friends, I'm in a no-code community. We talk about no-coding. So when I think of AI, I think of no-code. It Because before, you know, the buzz of it, I think people were starting to understand, I don't have to code my car to drive it, mm-hmm. right? I don't have to code my computer. I love programs. My mother's a programmer. She let me know every night at dinner how much she knew about, you know, <laughs> special languages. And it's why I, it's, it's who, it's why I'm a creative, right? Like I, I need for there to also be some space for people who aren't overly technical. And I think AI is doing that a little bit, but honestly, I would say it is a distraction because I think a lot of folks aren't ready. I would, I tend yeah. I agree with Annie. I just went to a lunch last week where they were talking about orchestration and automation for HR 
HR tooling, right? Which I was like, I'm terrified, right? Like these are the most, no, <laughs> they are no coders, right? And I love that. I'm a no coder too, but it's like now, you know, it's like handing someone the keys to a Ferrari. Like I remember I tried to drive stick shift for the first time, I almost rolled off a hill. That's how I feel about it. It's like, you're giving these folks like such powerful access. And my, the question I, that is left with me, and I think, I, I hope others are asking themselves the same thing. It's like, I just came from a company that, you know, the, it was founded. Coursera and Udacity were both out of Stanford and both professors of AI, right? Neither of, of which are called fathers, right? But, but like very, very important contributors to the industry. And so it became an obsession. And I think that we have to try to ask ourselves, like, is my robot going to pray for me though? Like there's still things that it's not going to do. I program, by the way, I say that because I did program Alexa to pray for me just to see what happened. I was like, no, <laughs> I don't like it, right? I just wanted to see how I felt because I don't want my microwave or my car to pray for me, you know? Well, so, I, you know, I'll close out to say that there's the zeros and ones of the thing, right? But if we ask ourselves, like, do we win, really want for AI or computers to be quantifying potential? Like you can quantify skills. I feel like that feels safe, right? We're talking about mm -hmm. how much of this is humanity? How much are we going to leave humanity in the decisions, in team, in upskilling, right? In managerial leadership and how much of it is going to be zeros and ones. And I think that's what I, I've been trying to reconcile mm -hmm. as I see these conversations, like just, you know, ballooning. I don't hear enough of that happen, that focus on, on that one question. So and I <laughs> yeah. said a lot, I just, I just left a company where everyone was like, AI, AI, AI. It's like, oh my gosh, it's too much. It's too much. You know, it's it's interesting what you say, Tiffany. When I oh, oh sorry, Doctor T. When I started, I just dead named you, oh, my, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> when I started talking about the future of work, I would say that was probably around 20, 2015. I was actually quoting some World Economic Forum data that said that coding would actually be the blue collar job of the future, right? Mm -hmm. And that was in twenty six. Now, you know what they're saying that coders will be ex extinct in the next twenty years. Years because generative AI is going to come in and uh, or or different types of uh, maybe not generative AI but different types of narrow AI will come in and just replace that and so nobody will have the need to code so I do think that it's really interesting this evolution and you you mentioned you touched a little bit of of the skills kind of half life of skills I do I I fully agree it, it, it's it's there we do not want <laughs> AI picking our next job, but do we want them making short lists for us to make it, you know, to just augment what we're doing either through speed, efficiency, or analysis? And that's where I think it's really interesting when applied to skills. At Degreed, we're definitely looking at how it can analyze and see patterns that we can't see in uh, the massive amounts of data that we've had for, you know, 10 years. We've been collecting skills data of clients who have been using our LXP. What can can we do with the interpretation of that for prediction value? So I think that that's really interesting, but I am super scared. Let's never let an AI shortlist. Now, long list is okay, but an AI shortlist and staff and pick everybody, I would be really, really uncomfortable with, with them you know, maybe even digging into the biases instead of overcoming them in some of the data sets that we see. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating because interesting hearing you talking about the short lists and the long lists. Maybe an AI, I'll take me personally, maybe if an AI 
read my digital footprint, it could give me some suggestions as to where my skills lie, but that may not be where my future passions lie. I might suddenly decide I actually yeah. don't want to be a marketing director anymore. I want to be somebody who programs drones or uh, flies airplanes or something like that. But that's not anywhere on my digital footprint. And so to have a machine tell me, no, 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 that's what you need to do, just going based on that past data. It can't tell the, the trend. So it's really, really fascinating. We are literally, I can't believe that we've, we're we nearly on the half an hour mark for the podcast. So what I want to do is just do a, like a closing a closing piece. You started right at the beginning, what David started right at the beginning saying, what's the future? What's your opinion of the future? And I just want to kind of round off with that to say, what's your utopia? So you, maybe you were talking about the AI being where you potentially, or, or that might be something that everyone's rushing towards. But if you could sit back with a nice uh, strawberry daiquiri or a glass of red wine in uh, in three years' time and say, actually, this is the direction that I wanted life to go in from a skills perspective, from the way in which people are learning, this is, this is good. Like, what's your utopia? I guess I'm going to start with you, Dr. C. You know, once upon a time, we we had to work weekends, right? And so when I think of AI, I agree with Annie, right? It's a, it's a little bit more pragmatic. I don't want, you know, AI to tell me my soul's purpose or my mythical assignment, right? I can do that just fine. You know, I got friends that 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 communicate and, and sort of, you know, help move us out of, again, the zeros and ones that, that can come with working at the speed of business. But somebody had to say like, hey, no child labor, that's bad, right? But at one point, you know, companies were like, well, I mean, are you sure? And so I feel like AI is going to help us just sort of get really honest about like, why are we, are we supposed to be working 40 hours a week? Right. Because we don't work, we didn't work weekends. But then in the last century, we were working weekends and somebody was like, you know, maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe we should have vacation. So that's what I see that the future of work in my view is more leisure but more, you know, it's not that we are relegated to, to a dystopian future. I see it as high potential, like in much like why 35 hours? I love Europe for, for championing that conversation. I feel like 35 hour work weeks, maybe that's like not the ambition anymore. Maybe AI is what helps us to very comfortably challenge a 40 hour work week or how we live and how we recreate, how we take control of our lives in a way that is just as aggressive as the good people, you know, the unions, whoever's responsible, I don't yeah. know, you know, employment law, but those good people, I feel we need them. You know, we need that energy right now to assert ourselves in the same way that they did with weekends, but in the way that we, we work and live. Nice. Annie, you're a utopia. Okay. So I'm a big science fiction fan and proud geek. So I like to use the term protopia. <laughs> Sorry. So now, now yeah, I'm hoping all of your listeners are now Googling protopia wow. and how is that different from a utopia? That's not the debate for today. However, I do think it is, you know, and we mentioned it a little bit and, you know, I'm plugging Josh Burson's terminology once again of learning in the flow of work. I think everything is going to be in a flow. So, when we're thinking about work, when we're thinking about leisure, and I loved what Dr. T had to say, and I fully agree with all of that, but technology is going to enable us to do this. Now, we have to resist the urge of saying, now we can produce more. <laughs> no, now we can live more and are enjoy, you know, the 100 some odd e years that is given to us. And so 
in that technology is going to help us live better. It's going to help us do everything better, but it's going to be in the flow. So I think my dream is that one day L&D departments are invisible or don't exist, not because they don't exist anymore and the need doesn't exist, but because they are going to be so embedded in the flow of what we do, they're going to be in, in you know, performance coaches. There'll be people are going to help you with the interface. You're going to have virtual assistants. You're going to have avatars that kind of interface with you, but then powered by the people around you that are actually doing more of those human things. And, you know, even saying human things is kind of a, <laughs> kind of a stretch because we can't even define what that is anymore, right? Which is interesting. But so my, my world is a connected world. It's a world where we have skills on demand. We'll be able to upskill as we do things. And we'll be living in this integrated, no line between actually doing work and learning to do work. I think that that would be my idea of protopia. David, now we have to use the word protopia. You know that, so <laughs> what is your protopia? What's my protopia? Well, I think about this an awful lot from a, a slightly extended societal perspective in that uh, there's one thing around corporate learning, but I've got an 11-year-old son called Oliver, and I'm constantly thinking about how do you prepare our children for the future of work? How do you give them learning agility, greater creativity to navigate this 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 very ambiguous world in which they're facing and i think you know really great organizations that stand out don't just invest in their own people but they're going to be playing a much greater role and co-partnering with the edtech providers as well as educational institutions to actually reinvent learning i think there is such a deep disconnect between what our kids are learning today to what we have to now kind of navigate and do in the working world and unless they can kind of co-solve that i think you're going to find a generation of kids that are ill prepared to kind of navigate this world so my utopia is, is that kind of coexistence between education sector plus plus corporates to to kind of solve for that really yeah, I love that. Everyone plays their part and everyone has an equal role to play. Listen, uh, we are just out of time for today, but that felt like we barely even touched the surface of the moon there. So these two and you are going to come and join me for another one in future. But Annie, thank you very much for joining us, being part of this, uh, this Madhouse podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Had a great time. Yeah, we did too. And Dr. T... <laughs> The persona that is Dr. T. You can Thank go back you. to being Tiffany after this. I do. Thank I can you go back to being Tiffany on. with, with me, guys. And I wanted to thank Annie for introducing me to you. I enjoyed it. What a wonderful, just invigorating conversation. Yeah, we loved it too. David, as always, thank you very much for joining me, sir. Absolute pleasure today. It was uplifting. Thank you. It was very, very good. Of course, you can get this podcast wherever you get your podcast. We're across all of the major channels. If you just ask for the HR on the Offensive podcast, then your Alexa, she won't pray for you or she won't do a good job of it, but she will tell you where you can find the HR on the Offensive podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed running today's show and hopefully we'll see you next time on the HR on the Offensive podcast. Goodbye.